So this is the last message in a series that's been entitled called Radical Return. How many of you have enjoyed, received over the past number of weeks the messages that have come forth to call us back to kingdom and what it means to be kingdom? I can tell you it is a radical shift in the way we think when it turns to kingdom. For me personally, what it does or has done is it exposes the utter lack in our American version of Christianity. It exposes the utter lack of the American version of Christianity that we typically walk in. You see, we as Americans can tend to have a little bit of arrogance in our superiority around the world. We call it American exceptionalism. You heard that term before? American exceptionalism. And if we're not careful, we might suppose ourselves to be the magna cum laude in every area, including even how we do church. Can I tell you, we do not score magna cum laude in our Christian faith. I believe other places of the world are a much better representation of our faith. And when we begin to look at the kingdom, it causes us to take a long look inside our heart and say, oh my goodness, Lord, we want to return back. Don't you want to return back to the, to the ancient paths and come and become the true church of Jesus? And he said that church, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Don't you want to be part of that church? And that's, you know, way more than a couple of hours every other week on a Sunday morning. It's, it's way more than that, way bigger than that, and God has called us into that place. So this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about on the theme of kingdom resilience, kingdom resilience. Now, who knows what resilience is? It's a word you may or may not use. So over the course of the message, I will tell you in advance that it's going to be a little bit more instructional, okay? So that means you need to dial in your cerebellum just a little bit with me, okay? Because we're going somewhere, and I want you to hang with it for the whole journey. So over course, we'll be looking at a number of scriptures and some key definitions as well. So hang with this. So let me give you a definition of resilience. Resilience. The capability of a strained body to recover its size and shape after deformation caused especially by compressive stress. An ability to recover from or adjust easily to misfortune or change. That's what resilience is. Now let me introduce you to one of my, my new favorite animals. In fact, you might want to buy this pet for your kids. All right? But you pop it on the screen. Who knows what this is right here? It's, there it is. Oh, nope. It's not me. I, there it is. Yes, that's not science fiction. That is actually a real micro animal known as a tardigrade. A tardigrade, or commonly called a water bear. A water bear. Now, why do I show you this? Because on the planet, this little animal that measures only five millimeters long has the record of being the most resilient animal on the planet. They are found at the depths of the ocean with a total absence of life, and they're also found in and around active volcanoes as well, and everywhere in between. They're able to survive in extreme conditions that would be fatal for almost every other animal on the planet, such as exposure to extreme temperatures, extreme pressures, both high and low, all forms of deprivation of air, radiation, dehydration, starvation. But guess what? They do more than just survive. They actually have little baby tardigrades, and they actually thrive in those environments. So God so hardwired their DNA to be able to survive in the harshest climates 
on the planet. They were designed to do so. Do you believe that we too, as citizens of the eternal kingdom, have been hardwired by our Heavenly Father to survive, to live in a harsh climate like we live in? How many of you realize that to live in this country right now or this world, we live in a place that is hostile to our faith? Do you feel it every single day? Every time you walk outside, you turn on the news, you interact with other people, this, it's difficult to live out your faith in this environment. In fact, if you lived in the United States for very long at all, there was a time in our history when the common culture shared our mores and our norms, that we all kind of agreed to a common morality. Folks may not have been Christians, but we gave mental assent on how we should live and how we should not live, what is right and what is wrong. So we could kind of be comfortable living out our faith. Who is old enough to remember a time when you could do that? How many of you know we're not in that time anymore? Sociologists tell us it's called postmodernism, that we now live in a time that is post-Christian. That means the world out there has gone the other direction, which is causing something to happen that's very new and novel to us as American Christians. We're actually having to take a stand for something and experiencing some inconvenience. I don't think we've had to sacrifice yet. That's coming. But we're having to be inconvenienced for our faith and maybe even experiencing some moderate levels of persecution as well. And that's not going to get any better. But as citizens of the kingdom, we have been given this trait called resilience. Resilience, able to rebound and thrive in an adverse culture. We can live in that. Now we know we have a challenge living in this place. The challenge in this place. Now let me give you an example of the challenge that Jesus gave in the parable of the sower. Oftentimes in the parables, you're sort of left to read that and let the Holy Spirit make the interpretation of how that parable is. The parable is oftentimes like a diamond, different facets of it. But on this particular parable, the parable of the sower, Jesus tells the parable, and then he begins to define for us what the parable means in one particular way to interpret it. Remember the story of the parable, right? The sower went out to sow and started throwing seeds on a variety of different grounds. Now let's key in for a second on Matthew 13, 22. Listen to this. And the one on whom seed, which we know is the word, seed was sown among the thorns. This is the man who hears the word. And their worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. So what he's saying is there's these people that receive the word, but they live in an environment with two particular kinds of thorns. The first thorn is this, the cares of this world, the anxieties of this world. And the second is the allure or the deceitfulness of wealth. Do you realize we live in a time that we have more to worry about than we have ever had to worry about? Now, when our kids were all kind of young and started able to watch some shows, we as a family chose not to watch TV at home. Now, we had a TV, but we didn't have cable or anything like that. So all we had was our VCR, our VCR player, if you remember those. Um, so my wife has this great idea. We're going to go through and watch all of Little House on the Prairie. How many of you remember a show called Little House on the Prairie, set in the picturesque landscape of Walnut Grove? How many of you watched Little House on the Prairie? Now, I can tell you, I felt like I had to turn in my man card when it came time to sit down and watch Little House on the Prairie. And I was in shock to find out there's something like 25 seasons of Little House on the Prairie <laughs> that we were fixing to engage in this marathon of this watching the show. But I found out very quickly I fell in love with Walnut Grove and Charles Ingalls, and there was suddenly an episode to go by that I didn't shed a few tears, which I didn't let anybody else in the family see. But it was 
remarkable when you watch that show because in the evening there was no electricity. So Charles Ingalls had to gather all the family together. Remember a little half pint and you know, half jug and gallon size and quart size. They'd all, they'd all come in around, you know, the fire and he pulls out the violin and he begins to play and they would sing and they would talk and the sun would go down and they would all go to bed and nobody was worried about what Kim Jong-un was doing. There was no talk of Russian collusion. There was no worry about what Ebola break out or what things were buried in the ground under the CDC. There's no worries, right? But now every single one of us in our current culture have access to 24-7, not just night and day prayer, but 24-7 night and day anxiety that's available to every single one of us all the time through this, right? So you can see the amped up cares of this world that we have access to that literally chokes out the Word of God and the truth in our life. And that's just one set of thorns. And there's this other set of thorns called the deceitfulness and the allure of wealth. In the country that we now live, we boast in our prosperity, but we know there's a whole marketing scheme out there that plays to all of us because we want the latest and greatest. Somebody made fun of my iPhone 7 just the other day and said, you don't have the 10 yet? No, I'm sacrificing for Jesus. I'm going to hold on to the 7 for a little bit longer. In other words, we have... We have a whole marketing scheme that causes us to more and more, bigger house, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. And guess what happens? We get on the train, and these thorns come, and they choke out the life of God in our life, and we never step into the kingdom resilience that God has for us. So let me give you a little riddle from a guy by the name of Walter Brueggemann, who's a, uh, one of the foremost Old Testament scholars alive today. But he, he puts forth this little riddle. He says, what has an attention span shorter than a goldfish? It's nine seconds, if you didn't know. And is as dumb as a sheep. What has the attention span shorter than a goldfish and is as dumb as a sheep? Well, the answer is not so funny. A person shaped by the rat race of anxiety and greed that dominate our society. Isn't that so true? And so true of me so often. So resilience is it even possible are there some examples that we can point to where we see a manifestation of real life kingdom resilience being lived out just want to cite a couple for us one obvious one is the none other the author of two-thirds of the new testament do you remember him formerly Saul, paul right paul amazing man, filled the Spirit, endured all kind of hardships. You read through the book of Acts, and it's incredible how he was beat up and left for dead, and then it says he got right back up and went back in and preached again. Come on, what in the world is going on in his life? He lived in this reality of kingdom resilience. Let me point to you one verse in 2 Corinthians 4 and 7, and he talks about this resilience for us. He says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. Now look at this. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. Incredible God, isn't it? Another example. A man by the name of Nate Saint, a missionary from the 19th, 50s. You may remember that name because there was a movie released a number of years ago called End of the Spear that was based on a documentary called Beyond the Gates of Splendor. If you've not watched this movie, how many seen the End of the Spear movie? Good. All right. Fantastic. Well worth the watch. It's a story about a team of missionaries, and Nate Saint was the pilot. They moved to Ecuador to reach a tribe, 
a dangerous tribe with the gospel of Jesus. But Nate and his team of missionaries were speared on the beach on January 8, 1956. They all died in their effort to reach this tribe. Many of you have been following the story of John Chow in India, right? Very similar story. They all died there on the beach. Many of these had families and wives and little kids. Now, you would think all the families would tuck tail and run, but guess what they did? They stayed kingdom resilience. They stayed to continue to reach out to this tribe. And guess what? Many in the tribe began to get saved, born again. Even one member of the tribe by the name of Mikanye was born again and saved. Mikanye was the guy who actually speared Nate himself. Mikanye would get to lead and baptize Nate's saint son, Stephen, into the faith. Isn't that cool? Kingdom resilience. There's a famous quote, you may have heard it, by Jim Elliot, as it relates to what we're talking about here, he said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let that sit in your brain for a second. And then there's Uncle Roy. Let me tell you about Uncle Roy. Uncle Roy is my wife's great uncle. Now, Uncle Roy was a unique guy. We got to spend some time with him over the years as they would come into town and visit. And Uncle Roy was a mess. He had diabetes. He was nearly blind. He was an amputee. He had congestive heart failure, just to name a few. Roy was in continual and constant pain. In fact, he carried his pain medication and all of his pills around with him in his fishing tackle box. It was impressive. You've seen the fishing tackle box that open up with multiple layers that kind of open up and just kind of folds out. That was all of his medication and all of his pills. This guy was in a lot of pain, but yet Roy loved Jesus. He loved taking Bibles into the prison and sharing the gospel. He lived to do that. And when you would see Uncle Roy and you would ask Uncle Roy, Uncle Roy, how are you doing? And to look at him, you knew he was in pain, but his answer was always the same. He gave this big smile and said, I'm joyfully blessed. And he meant it. What was going on in Uncle Roy's life? So let me ask you, were these three examples, were they just an exclusive set of a kingdom seal team six that God supernaturally anointed to walk in such resilience? Or is this thing we're talking about here available to every single one of us? Do you think it is? It absolutely is. So is there a secret on how to walk in kingdom resilience? Let's talk about that. Because if there is a secret, don't you want to know the secret? Right? If there's a pill to take, you take it, wouldn't it? What is the secret to walk in what Paul walked in, to walk in what Nate Saint walked in, to have the kind of resilience operative in your life to be an Uncle Roy, regardless of circumstance, regardless of physical situation, that I am joyfully blessed. See, this is available to every single one of us, but we need to discover the secret. Let me share with you a passage in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, and, and Paul begins to allude to this. He says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Now, we could camp here for a long time, but we got to keep moving. But what you notice about this secret is, is that kingdom resilience is born out of contentment and peace. 
not hard work and striving and anxiety and trying to measure up or self-improvement. That's not where kingdom resilience is born. It is born out of a place of contentment and peace. How many of you would say you could probably use some more contentment and peace in your life? Now, this makes perfectly good sense because even physiologically, we need to have peace in our physical bodies. There's this word called homeostasis. Who's ever heard of the word homeostasis? It simply is this. It is referring to physiological peace. Let me offer you a definition of homeostasis. The state of steady internal conditions maintained by living things. This dynamic state of equilibrium is the condition of optimal functioning for the organism and includes many variables such as body temperature and fluid balance being kept within certain preset limits. And I realize that is a mouthful. But what it says is this, that if our body stays at a place of peace and health, a place of homeostasis, we will be healthy by and large. But if we are given over to internal and external stresses, what might happen to us? We might get what? We might get a little bit sick, correct? We might get sick. Now, the danger of this for us is that we're going to allow these stresses in us. And what happens is, and I won't bore you with a lot of details, but a lot of science exists out there that a lot of sickness is a result of our body not being in homeostasis. They have proven that people who are very angry are eaten up in bitterness. There could be a correlation to all forms of arthritis and cancer. Now, do not hear me say, if you have arthritis and cancer, that you're bitter. Got that? But there are correlations and you begin to draw the line. Because what begins to happen in your physical body when you're engaged in anxiety and stress and trying to keep up with, with the Joneses, your body releases something called adrenaline. It's the fight or flight syndrome. We've all experienced that. But when it hits you in small doses, it begins to weaken your immune system over time. And what does your immune system protect you from? Yeah, from sickness. It makes you susceptible to sickness. So you see, your body is wired to be set within this thing called preset limits to stay healthy. So we, the, the, the same truth exists within the kingdom of God that he so wired us spiritually that we can walk in preset limits, that we can experience kingdom resilience in this fallen world in which we live. Now let me, how many of you have your go-to scripture? Anybody have like your favorite scripture? That one that just endures the test of time. It's like you probably read it once or twice a month or you're going through a difficult time. You always go back to that verse. Just a particular scripture that you come back to constantly. Well, I have one I want to share with you that I believe that Paul tells us what this secret is. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. This passage for me is so important. It is Paul's modus operandi. What does that mean? This is how Paul flows. This is what Paul does. Now, Paul said something to all of us. He said what? Follow me. Remember this? As I follow Christ. So Paul is saying to us, this is what I do. This is what I emulate. So if you want to follow Christ, you would do well to follow me when I'm getting ready to tell you right here. Are you ready? This is Paul in verse number three. We're going to read all these verses because they're just so good. Giving no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God. Listen to this now. In much endurance and inflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, 
in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live, as punished yet not put to death, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, and ready for the clincher, as having nothing yet possessing all things can we say that together as having nothing yet possessing all things you know it sounds a lot like what jim elliott said years ago when he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose now the key thought here this is why i want you to dial in your brain for a second because the brain sometimes gives us access to our heart so dial in with me here for the next few moments here's a key thought In possessing nothing, this key, this secret, in possessing nothing, we dispossess polarity. In possessing nothing, we dispossess polarity. You say, well, what is polarity? How many electricians in the room? You know what what polarity is, right? For those of you that don't, let me offer you a definition of what polarity means. It is the state of having two opposite or contradictory tendencies, opinions, or aspects. Now we live in a world that has succumbed to a variety of forms of polarities. It is the fishbowl that we all swim in. There is light and dark. They're in polarity. There's good, there's evil. There's rich, there's poor. There's hot, there's cold. There's good, there's bad. In our house, there's spicy and there's bland when it comes to food. Polarity. We live in polarity. Paul would say, I've learned to be in need and I've had plenty but yet I've been content. It's the polarity that we all live in. This is the fallen state of the world. James chapter 1 tells us about this fallen world. He says that we live in this, and as a result of living in this world, we are cast to and fro, right, on the waves. Because a double-minded man is what? Unstable in all of his ways, being cast back and forth, back and forth. A classic example of this in Scripture we find in 1 Kings 18. Remember the story of 1 Kings 18? It's one of the best chapters in all of the Bible, Right? It's Elijah on Mount Carmel. You remember the story probably, right? Elijah on Mount Carmel in this contest with the prophets of Baal. And guess what happens? Elijah calls down fire. Fire laps up the sacrifices. All the prophets of Baal are dealt with. And then Elijah turns to the people and he asks them this question. And we see polarity happening. 1 Corinthians 18.2. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. How many of you know in saying nothing you've made a decision? That's what polarity looks like. You see, when you begin to enter into this place where we possess nothing, and we'll share how to do that in a moment, but we find out in possessing nothing, we get the revelation and we discover that he possesses us. We never get the revelation of how he possesses us until we possess nothing. Now, the more I possess, the more I own, the more I lay claim to, it results in things that I have to control, preserve, and protect, whether it's my own life or all the stuff that I own. Do you hear that? The more I possess, the more the stuff tends to possess me. As a result, I have to control it, preserve it, and protect it. 
I remember when Michelle and I got married many moons ago, 29 years ago almost, and we moved into this little bitty apartment. It was our first home, and it was so tiny. My great-grandmother would say it was so small you couldn't even cuss a cat in the room. It was just, it was just a, it was a, it was a tiny little, little space. And we moved into this little place, and we could not fill up the cat. I mean, there was so few cabinets and so few drawers, but we got all of our stuff, and we had room to spare. We had drawers empty, cabinets empty. But guess what now? 29 years later, 3,500 square foot house, many cabinets, many drawers, they're all full. There's hardly a square inch of usable space in any storage area in our house. Let me just give you an invitation. Go home and start looking around your house. Look in the closets. Look in the drawer. Go in the attic and look around. I'll bet you possess a lot more than you possessed 10 years ago. There's something about us that continually possesses and gets more stuff and more stuff and more stuff. And how many of you know all that stuff requires you got to take care of it when you own it? It begins to own you, doesn't it? You try to control it. But can I just offer you something? Control is an absolute illusion. You realize that, right? To control anything is an absolute illusion. Paul gives us this invitation because in possessing nothing, it destroys the illusion of control. The very thought that you're even in control is a complete fantasy because none of us are in control, right? None of us are in control. I can't control my breath. I can't control my autonomic nervous system. I can't control things in me. At, at any moment, I could give out. At any moment, I could take one little step over here and fall over and it'll all be over, right? We can't control anything, can we? I can't control the economy. I can't control how my car works. I can't control my children. And Lord knows I can't control my wife. I've tried. It doesn't work. So when you possess nothing, you realize, then guess what? I'm not in control. And Paul says, now you're beginning to get there. Now you're moving into a place of freedom. So we begin to dispossess polarity. We begin to move above and beyond this stuff. See, our citizenship as born-again believers has now changed. We no longer source ourselves from the world, from the world system that's controlled by polarity. Now our life is sourced from the kingdom of light. In other words, we live in the thorns, but yet we transform beyond the thorns. We transcend them to a place in Christ. Yes, we live in it, but now we live above it. We are in the world, but what? We are not of the world in this place. It's possible to live there. In fact, oftentimes we even sing old songs about it. Remember the old song, turn your eyes, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. Remember that song? And the things of earth will grow what? Strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. It's the opportunity we get to live inside of him. He said, prove it, preacher. Do you have some scripture on that? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Bible verifies this for us. Let me just offer you a couple. Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. It says he has put eternity in the human heart. In other words, you are unique to every other animal on the planet. Do you realize that? That you are unique to every other animal. You're not just a normal mammal. We have been made in the image of God, and in the image of God, He put in all of His creation, right? All of His created ones who are made in His image, He put the capacity to comprehend eternity. And you see examples of this, whether you're reading Socrates, 
or Plato or Aristotle. These guys know they were not Christian, but they had the capacity to comprehend the eternal. Whether it's Galileo or whether it's Copernicus or whether it's Einstein or whether it's Stephen Hawking. All these guys, some Christians, some not. They had the ability to contemplate outside themselves, didn't they? Right? He put eternity inside of our heart. When I was going to seminary, I had a Greek professor by the name of Dr. French Arrington. And he spoke French, by the way, too. He spoke a number of languages. But he was a Greek scholar, right? And if you don't know Greek, well, Greek was the language the New Testament was written in. So it's the original language. And on the first day of class, he said, you know, you guys are anthropos. I'll never forget. He goes, you are anthropos. That's the Greek word for man. We get the word anthropology from the word anthropos, which is the study of man, right? But French Arrington said, listen, when you break down the word anthropos and its constituent parts and you do some etymology on the Koine Greek and all these flowery language, he said what anthropos literally means, it means to look up into the face of. To look up into the face of. Now think about every other mammal you know on the planet typically walks on all fours and their bent what is to look down. But God has so made us, scientists say it, homo erectus, right? We stand upright if your spine is straight. We stand upright and have good posture. And what do we do? We naturally look up. Our gaze, our bent is naturally up as opposed to every other mammal on the planet. Why? Because he's put eternity in our hearts, the ability to capacitate and think outside him or herself. God put that in all of his creation to drive us, to move us toward Him. Romans 1 says that we are without excuse when we look at the natural order of things, right? We are without excuse because we have been made to contemplate and understand that someone made it to drive us back to Him. God fashioned us in our very skeletal structure to comprehend eternity, but eternity is not enough to get us there. But God hardwired all of humanity to get this. Ephesians 2, 6 tells us that, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Do you think this is just an analogy or do you think it's true? So where are we locationally here? We are with him. Does it say that? We are seated with him. This is not an analogy. This is not fantasy. This is actually a positional location that we are with Christ in the heavenly places. Let me give you a great hermeneutic when you're studying the Bible. Ready? You, this is absolutely free. I won't charge you for it. If the plain sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense or you'll probably end up with nonsense. There you go. You can go to 15 years of cemetery, cemetery, seminary and you will not walk out with something as good as that. We are seated with him in heavenly places. What does that mean? That in Him we transcend what? The natural order of things. We transcend polarity. We are no longer trapped and encased in what everybody else is encased in. That's being tossed to and fro by the cares of this life and the allure of wealth. We transcend it. We live above it. 2 Corinthians 1.22 says, He set a seal of ownership on us. And put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Do you realize God has made a deposit in your account? He made it inside of you by the person of the Holy Spirit to guarantee you what is on the way for us. And this enables us to live in this place called eternity, in the revelation of eternity. I love Acts 17, 28. Another favorite verse of mine. In him we live, you know this. 
and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. In Him we live and move and have our being, that we're being invited as citizens of the kingdom to live a different sort of life that everybody else lives, because we live from a different place. The atmosphere of heaven is within us, and we live out of this place. The atmosphere of heaven is within us. Do you believe that? That the atmosphere of heaven resides inside of us? Now, I'm not acknowledging well enough that we live in a difficult place. I understand that. So, Scripture is replete of examples. In fact, Pauline theology, there's this idea called already, not yet. Already, not yet. So, Paul's always using this little phrase because what it literally means is that the kingdom is described in Scripture as both a present reality that we now enter into and as one in the eternal future. That we are already experiencing some of it, but we're not yet come into the fullness of it yet. In other words, God has not called us to bury ourselves in a Christian foxhole somewhere and try to survive until Jesus comes. It is not the abundant life that you have been predestined to and I have been predestined to. Not to just survive, but we can actually thrive, just like the tardigrade, in this harsh and difficult environment. We live here. Someone once said, and I love this, that on earth, in the current state of things, in the state of polarity, on earth we are afforded the chance to taste both heaven and hell. Isn't that true? On this planet that we live in, we are afforded the opportunity to actually taste a little bit of hell and taste a little bit of heaven. But you may be thinking, man, it sounds good, but come on, man, you're painting a picture. This can't be really for me. Do you believe that God is a liar? No. God is true. Do you think he's a good father? Do you think his promises are actually yes and amen to those who believe? Do you think God's trying to trick us? I told the story earlier that I was raised not really on a farm, but we had some, we had a menagerie of different animals. And uh, one of the animals my dad bought was a donkey. Most, we had horses and chickens and all these things, but I just liked the donkey or something. I just felt an affinity for the donkey. I don't know if it was something in the blood. Maybe we were related. <laughs> Somehow my wife says the way I send the same DNA there. But this donkey, I was amazed. They were so smart and the thing was so stubborn because you couldn't get him to move. You try to move it from one pasture, you would shove and you'd push, and, and he would just bow up. He would not move. He would not move. So I would get on the donkey and I'd try to ride the donkey. It worked a lot better for Jesus than it did for me. All right? I would spank the donkey, beat the donkey, kick the donkey, and the donkey wouldn't move. If he did move, he'd move up against a tree or a, or a barbed wire fence to try to scrape me off of him. I never got the donkey to go anywhere, but I figured out something in my little 10 or 11-year-old mind. I figured out something that if I tied a carrot on the end of a string and tied it to a stick and I held it out in front of the donkey, guess what would happen? The donkey would reach for the carrot and he would take a step in the direction I was holding it. And guess what? Oh, I just, now I'm controlling the donkey. I could lead that donkey all over that 15 acres. But you know what? If I ever made the mistake and let him get a hold of the carrot, guess what? He would not move. Listen, our Father does not play those kind of games with us. He doesn't hold and dangle a carrot in front of us for us to move toward it and then deny us the ability to eat it and enjoy it. That's not our God. That's not our Father. That's not my King. That's not who we signed up to serve. That He is actually for us and He is not against us. We just sang it. He's doing that for us. 
But there's a manner by which we enter in to the promises that we inherit them. To inherit something, you have to receive something. You can't, it doesn't arbitrarily happen. You have to be able to receive it. How do you enter into this reality? Because remember, when we own nothing, we walk in the truth of Him owning us. We are bought with a price. By the way, these notes are online if you're leaving kind of quick. MyNewBridge.Church. Luke 14.33 is the threshold of the door to enter into the reality that I'm describing for us. The secret in which Paul is inviting us into. Luke 14.33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Man, that's just not one of those things you see on the kiosk of churches these days. Do you see that on the kiosk of churches? You don't see that printed on the front of the bulletin, right? So therefore, Jesus said this, if any of you does not renounce all that he has, cannot be my disciple. What is renouncing? That word is a legal term to renounce something. If I renounce something, I'm taking a legal action. And in this case, I am formally declaring my abandonment of a claim, a right, or a possession to anything. I formally abandon my claim, my right, or my possession to a given thing or a given person. That's what it means to renounce. Now, it doesn't mean I can't have these things, but i got to say I don't lay claim to them. There's a difference in having something versus laying claim to something. It's really important. So don't leave here thinking, well, he wants me to go out and sell everything and live in the streets. Can I tell you there are people that live in the streets who are as in bad a shape as people who have a lot because they don't walk in this principle? It's true. In other words, laying claim to something, giving up, right? Now, I have found, as I have tried to do this my own, I mentioned earlier, aforesaid, the full attic and closets and all those things. I have contemplated the idea in the past. I said, honey, I just want to be a minimalist. I just want to, just, I want to sell it all. And I just want to move into a camper. I just, I, I want to move into a camper and just be free of all these things. Who's ever had that thought before? My wife says, well, you, you have fun with that. You enjoy that camper all by yourself. But that's, that's not the answer, isn't it? That's not what Jesus is trying to get us to do. It says, I renounce all claim to it, but I found out that it's difficult to do that because stuff is really appealing. And the allure of wealth is a reality. But remember I mentioned God made a deposit in us called the Holy Spirit? So as we begin to renounce all of our stuff, then we come in through humility. We enter into the yes of this promise. This secret comes from humility. That's why I want you to really dial in for the next few minutes. Humility. Humility acknowledges that I can't do this on my own. I must be transformed. Remember, our human flesh, the part of us that exists in this realm, the part of us that God picked up from the dirt and formed us and breathed in the breath of life, is still tied down to this earth. Makes sense, doesn't it? That's why we can't take this flesh to heaven. We have to have a new body. We're stuck in this thing. In other words, I can't do this on my own. So humility says, Lord, transform me. This is not accomplished in us by willpower, by self-help books, by following these four steps. It comes by humbling ourselves and, dear God, help me. I can't do that. And then the father says, oh, now you're getting somewhere, son. Now you're getting somewhere, daughter, because the process of transformation is dying with Christ in order to be raised to new life in Him. New life has to be preceded by some form of death. That when we die to ourselves, then Jesus says, I can come in and move in you. 
Number three, humility releases the grace of God in our lives. Why humility? Because humility releases the grace of God in our life. You know this passage, 1 Peter 5.5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourself, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives what? Grace to the humble. How many of you want more grace? How many of you would say, I want to be a charismatic? Put your hand up. Ooh, I baited you, didn't I? I tricked you. You know what? Every hand should be up in the room. And I'm not referring to some preacher with his head slicked by and pushing over everybody, pushing off everybody. I mean, that's not, you know what charismatic really means? It comes from two basic words, charis and mata. It means the movement of grace through one's life. That's what it means to be a charismatic. So if you're a charismatic, that means grace moves through your life. God gives you grace and you manifest grace. Now, how many of you want to be a charismatic? Sign me up. Somebody says, are you a charismatic? Oh, yeah, baby. But I probably don't define it like you define it. That I want grace to move through my life. Because it says God gives grace to the humble. But this is the scary part. This is the antithesis of that. That God opposes the what? Proud. Now, that's kind of scary. It's not that God is ambivalent toward pride. He actually sets himself in opposition to pride. I wonder sometimes if we go through difficulties in our life, circumstantially, where we're going through all these hard times and we're blaming the devil, and it could be just that God is opposing us. He would never do such a thing. Oh, yes, he would. For one Saul of Tarsus, he did that. He sent a thorn in the flesh via a messenger of Satan, right? to help perpetuate humility in Paul's life. Check it out. That'll warp your theology, won't it? Because God is in opposition to any form of pride and arrogance that rises up as the seminal sin in every single one of us that originated in Lucifer himself. God is opposed to that. He wants to eradicate that from us. Why? So he can release grace in our life. Listen, to lose pride is no loss. Grace is way better, I promise. Grace is way better. Releasing grace in our life. There was a lady in our church in Dalton. I was um, an associate pastor there for five years. And her name was Belle Green. Belle Green. We called her Sister Green. She lived in Section 8 housing, had very little, lived off of Social Security. She was 87 years old when I first met her. Sister Green had 11 children. Had 11 children. When Sister Green became pregnant with her 11th child, her husband left her. Some of your husband are quality thinking, I probably did the same thing, but I mean, goodness, 11 kids, and her husband bailed on her when she was pregnant with the 11th. I would sit and visit with Sister Green, with them, Sister Green at least once every couple of weeks, and I was amazed by her faith to hear her story. She was not a professional woman. She was not a highly educated woman. She, for two or three or four jobs, raised all of her children by faith and working hard. Stories and stories of God's faithfulness throughout years and years and years and years. And on her wall in her little apartment was a portrait of all of her 11 children. And she would sit back and she'd say, let me tell you about my kids. Well, that's Joe. Joe loves Jesus. He's good. Well, that's Betty. She's probably going to go to hell if she dies right now. And I mean, she would just go through and she would just bam, 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 miss it. Wow, Sister Green, man, you're made of some different kind of stuff. <laughs> one of the greatest moments of my life that'll be in my annals one day 
was getting to be in the hospital on the day that Sister Green passed away. She had a congestive heart failure, which, which many of you know, that's kind of a slow death, right? So she's in the hospital room. She has her oxygen mask on. The entire family is there, all 11 kids, all their respective spouses, all their kids, all the grandkids, all the great grandkids. I mean, listen, the hospital was full of greens, full of greens. And little sister green was laid in her bed, and one by one, she called in every member of the family. Every son, every daughter would come in, and she would reach up her bony hand. And I remember watching this. She'd grab the back of their neck, and she'd pull them down real close. She'd take her oxygen mask off, and she'd whisper something in their ear. She did that for every son, every son-in-law, every daughter, every daughter-in-law, every grandchild, every grandchild's husband or wife, every great-grandchild. This went on for two hours. I sat there marveling at what I was seeing because some would exit her hospital room just smiling, beaming with joy. Others would come out weeping in tears because I remember her point. I no time what she said. But it was some kind of matriarchal, powerful, powerful blessing. And after she did that, it took two and a half hours. Then guess what? She went on to her reward. And I sat back and said, my goodness, Lord, what was Sister Green made? She manifested a kingdom resilience through her entire life, and she finished the race well for the glory of God and honored God. He hasn't chosen many noble ones. He hasn't chosen many wise. He's chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of man because nobody on the planet would ever give Sister Green any kind of award because she was not probably a non-event on the world stage. But I dare say... <laughs> Her mansion's going to tower over mine in heaven one day. Kingdom resilience. So similar to the beautiful little tardigrade, right, who had this superior physiological resistance that was born out of genetics. Our kingdom resilience manifests from a place of rest and trust in who owns and who resides in us, not from our efforts, lest we become proud. Because we breathe another atmosphere, right? From a different place, a different city, whose builder and architect is God. Remember the story of Abraham. We find out in Hebrews 11, something about Abraham. He was on a journey for a city, not that was going to be found in the desert, but a city whose builder and architect was God. This is where our citizenship belongs. This is the air that we breathe. This is the atmosphere inside of us that we get to enjoy. And the power of grace that is released in our lives transforms us from a selfish life to a selfless life. And that's how it works, through the path of humility. Let me land the plane with just a couple of scriptures here. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, God says, I dwell on a high and holy place. And also, everybody say, and also. <laughs> and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Many of us never experience personal revival. We never experience any type of reviving of heart and soul because we are full of pride and full of arrogance and we have not embraced humility and meekness. It is true 
Because God, listen to what God is saying here. I dwell on a high and holy hill, but that's not the only place God dwells. He says, I dwell with the lowly and the contrite. And for such people, I will revive their heart. I will revive their soul. I will manifest kingdom resilience in them to not just survive in this world, but to thrive in this world. So humility is the path. We renounce, we humble ourselves, say, God, we cannot do this on our own. And we enter into a place of experiencing grace manifested in our life in a powerful and amazing way. Why? We obviously need this, right? We all need to enter into this place. But I want to tell you something. We're going to need it in the days to come, my friends. We live in America. Quite frankly, we live in our own little fantasy world. We are Alice and we've fallen down the, we've fallen down the hole. We think that difficult times are not going to come to this nation. Because we're Americans, it can't happen to us. Do you hear pride and arrogance in that statement at all? Listen, hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, 21. These are words for us right now. This is what Jesus says. For then there will be a great tribulation. Such has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. There is a time coming upon the earth that everything that can be shaken, it will be shaken. And it's only a people who have humbled themselves in the sight of God, who are contrite, who are lowly, who have renounced their claim to all earthly possessions, even their own lives. It's going to be able to yield and manifest a kingdom resilience to be useful in the days to come to manifest His glory. And it's not going to happen without great intentionality on our part because promises and principles in Scripture have to be entered into. They don't visit us on our recliner and force themselves upon us. We enter into it. We enter into these things. And the question is, do you want to enter into it? Do you want to move into that place? of seeing all that the Father has for you. Can I invite you to stand? You know, we, um, we as a faith family are, are so committed here in what the Father has, has, has asked us to do. We want to get back to the ancient paths, right? We want to we return to that which worked. And it wasn't complicated. It, it said in Scripture that they, that they met together in corporate gatherings like this, and they worshiped, and then they met from house to house. We believe that's what you're supposed to do. That's why we're going in that direction. We believe they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why this is about. That's why God took a Pentecostal church called Cornerstone and brought together the Baptist church called Meadow, Word and Spirit coming together. And then in the genius of God, it says, now there's a people that's devoted to prayer and intimacy with God and mission. Now I'm going to wrap them in this together, and I'm going to put you all together to take a journey with me. Back to the ancient paths that we're called to. That's what we're about. We're not just here on a Sunday morning on Wednesday night to feel good about ourselves. We believe we're a people of destiny. And it's not unique to us. This past weekend, I was up at the Perry College Windshape Retreat Center with a bunch of one race pastors and leaders, 40 pastors up there for different, for different churches, different, different denominations, and they're all saying the same thing. 
that we're not alone, that the Lord is breathing on his church and he's calling us out. And he said, listen, my sons and daughters, I don't just want to dwell on a high and holy hill. I want to dwell with the lowly and the contrite and the, and the humble. Are you willing first to renounce all claims to everything, all your stuff, all the closets and the drawers? Are you willing to renounce, even claim to your own life? I said, God, it's all yours. Are you willing to possess nothing in order to possess everything, which is Jesus? He's calling us, guys. He's inviting us into something that's so much more grand than we can ever imagine. And I believe in this place this morning, God has put in all of you a pioneer spirit. Something that was inside of Lewis and Clark when they stepped side on the western banks of the Mississippi and their foot touched ground that no cartographer had ever been before. No roads, no journeys, no canals. Just a journey with God. The journey with God. He put that in all of us because he put eternity in your heart. Amen. Are you willing to make that journey? Father, this morning we stand. Could you just open your hands with me? Just, Lord, we open our hands and our hearts. God, right now, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Lord, as I prayed at the very beginning, Lord, I don't even know how to pray these prayers anymore. Lord, you have, you have shaken and, and you have reoriented and you have messed up my life in so many ways, so many wonderful ways, God. You, all the old wineskins, all the old playbooks, all the old forms, and Lord, you've just laid it all waste. Lord, you have ruined us for the ordinary, Lord. You've ruined us for the ordinary. We've tasted and seen that you are good, God, and we want more, Lord. We want to go the distance with you, God. Lord, we want to be Sister Green. God, we want to be that kind of faithfulness to finish well, Lord. Whether we die at 20 by getting speared on a beach or whether we die at 87 with heart disease, God, we want to finish the race in humility and glorifying your great name. We're here, God. Come, Holy Spirit. We can't do this without you, God. We can't do this without you. Let's just worship him and just take a moment with Jesus right now. Renounce everything. Just renounce it. Jesus said you can do it. Renounce your claim to all of it. Renounce it. I renounce my house. I renounce it all. Jesus said if you don't hate your father, hate your mother, hate everything, you have no part of me. What he's saying is renounce your claim to anything. Unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, that's the only way to find life and life to the fullest. Become Jesus. Let's worship him.